as before. Oliver Enwin, according to his personal file, had come out to Egypt as a minor assistant on an archaeological dig, which found nothing beyond a collection of pagan Arab statuettes, about as primitive to civilized Romans as to ourselves, but no doubt of interest to the professional. He then joined the British Council, organization of semi-intellectual misfits which taught English literature and language in the half-world of the Middle East. Always seemed to me a waste of time and money. Again, conceit. I doubt if it did much good to the boys and girls whose only ambition was to write English good enough for commercial clerkships. But the teachers obtained insight into the languages and traditions of their customers, which soldiers and diplomatists could not. Besides fluent Arabic, Inwin had French, Italian, and enough Greek to chatter his way through lunch in the hideous and respectable homes of the small businessmen who was overfed children he introduced to the daffodils of Wordsworth and Shakespeare. To one, an indecisive British council sort of blossom, and to the other, the flower of courage. Aspect of himself, although he would not have seen it, he was neutral, too, in appearance, for he belonged to that pre-Celtic Mediterranean race so common in the west of England. The dark, straight hair, brown eyes, and a complexion like the most delicate leather, altogether a handsome young man of middle height, who had in him more of the dignity of the Arab than the animation of the Latin. That a rough sketch tells you more of the limitations of an amateur British officer than it does of Oliver Enwin. He could be anything to anyone— Wet was an adjective I used to hear applied to him, but to me he was more like wet clay with a will moulding it. A very obscure will. In 1939 he offered himself to the army, and he was taken on as an interpreter and a translator by Security Intelligence Middle East. And there he showed impressive industry, working night and day at his Arabic until it became so good that he could switch without effort between the classical language of the desert and Egyptian. Military intelligence wasn't going to waste such material. He was put into uniform, trained, so far as we had the time and facilities to train anybody in those early days in the fortress of the Middle East. And in 1941 was assistant defense security officer at Nazareth. By now you may have forgotten what that post involved. The ADSO within his own district was the eyes and ears of security. He had money to pay agents and a fairly free hand in choosing them. His advice was taken if he was a good man. If he was too good a man, he ran some risk of character assassination. That was why no accusations against a defense security officer were readily believed. You will agree that it's hard to run a security organization without assuming that your key men are above suspicion. Otherwise, there's little time to get on with the real business of putting the fear of death or internment into enemy agents. The choice of men, since we'd only the Middle East to draw on, was sometimes odd. An officer of outstanding honesty and conventional character hadn't a hope against Arabs and Zionists at the top of their form, let alone the German consuls at Antioch and Alexandretta. One needed a man with cunning and languages and a devious mind. He had, of course, to be unbribable and unlikely to set up his girlfriend as a trusted agent and pay her rent out of the secret funds. 
Or if he did do this, and it wasn't unheard of, he had to persuade his boss that the game was worth it. The perfect ADSO was a first-class crook with an immaculate sense of honour. I liked Enwin. Besides meeting him at security conferences, I used now and then to call at his office, usually asking for information from his files. He was direct, though inclined to be patronising. Either he'd give me what I wanted without humming and hawing, plus his own impression of the reality behind the verbiage of a security report, or he'd warn me that I was trespassing on private property and had better call off my hounds forthwith and stop them yapping. Now what happened when a man such as Enwin went, went wrong? Well, first one didn't believe it. The proverb that there's no smoke without flame has no validity for men who live in smoke. But suppose the flame simply couldn't be ignored. Who in